0: Our psalm this morning, as you can see on your bulletin, is Psalm 113. If you uh, are able or have a Bible with you, I'd encourage you to uh, open it up to to that psalm. If you don't have a Bible, didn't bring one with you, if you look in the seat back in front of you, underneath the seat, you should find a a Bible under there, and uh, you can use that as we go along. Psalm 113 is part of a group of psalms. Uh, Psalms are sometimes grouped together in in, uh, large groups. Uh, The psalm is actually divided up into five different books. And this psalm, Psalm 113, is part of a smaller grouping of six psalms. And these psalms are known as the Egyptian Hallel. Egyptian Hallel. Now that's a strange word uh, or strange phrase for us. The, The word Hallel is a Hebrew word which simply means praise. And so these psalms, Psalm 113 through 118, these six psalms are centered around praising God. And those six psalms were specifically sung during the Passover, the Egyptian Hillel. And and that's why we get the name Egyptian from that. Because those six psalms not only center on praising God, but they center and sort of revolve around what happened in the Exodus, praising God for what he did in releasing Israel from slavery in Egypt. Psalms 113 and 114 were sung prior to the eating of the Passover meal, And then after they would eat the meal, Psalms 115 through 118 were sung. Now, as you look at Psalm 113, you see that it's comprised of nine verses. So it's a relatively short psalm. But if you look at the structure of the psalm, you'll see that it is framed with the the phrase there, praise the Lord. It's in verse 1, right there at the beginning, and it's at the very end of verse 9. So, so those two praise the Lord frame this psalm. And where that word hallel fits in there is something that you've probably heard before. If you take that phrase, praise the Lord, and you look at it in the Hebrew, hallel would be praise, and Lord is the shortened name for god use their yah and so praise the lord is hallelujah and so psalm 113 opens and closes with hallelujah listen now as i read psalm 113 praise the lord praise O servants of the lord praise the name of the lord Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. From the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. The Lord is high above all nations and his glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God, who is seated on high, who looks far down on the heavens and the earth? He raises the poor from the dust. And lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, with the princes of his people. He gives the barren woman a home, making her the joyous mother of children. Praise the Lord. Again, it's a short psalm. But if we want to divide the psalm and and look at some kind of structure here, again, as we frame it with those two hallelujahs, we can see here that the center of the psalm, as I mentioned before, sometimes the center is kind of the main point of the psalm. I think it is, again, this time, the the center of this psalm is a rhetorical question, seated right there in verse 5. Who is like the Lord our God? That's the question that the psalmist asks. And and he frames that question with two evenly divided sections. And I'm going to divide the psalm that way this morning. Verses 1 through 4, I think, look at what we can say is the majesty of God. While verses 7 through 9 look at the graciousness or the grace of God. And then verse five sits right there in the middle, who is like the Lord our God, and and six is kind of a transition verse. So first, let's look at the majesty of the Lord, verses one through four. Praise. Praise, that word there, halal, is found five times in this short psalm. Now the command, praise the Lord, is found all throughout the Psalter. And you can see it, if you just look to the left in the Bible you're using, you will probably see it right there in Psalm 111 and Psalm 112. They both begin with that same phrase, praise the Lord. And we find pictures all throughout the Bible of God being praised. We even find, in for instance, Isaiah chapter 6, And in Revelation chapter 5, we see vivid pictures of even the angelic host bowing down and praising God. And so on one level, we understand, when we read praise the Lord, we understand on one level what that means. Because we as humans offer praise, probably on on a relatively frequent basis, to other human beings. Those of you who are parents... Know how often, throughout their lives, you praise your children. Oftentimes, when they're little, you praise them many, many times throughout the day for little things that they do—tying their shoes or or giving you a, a a scribbled drawing that doesn't really look very good—but you say, "Great job!" Right? So you offer praise to other people, and and we see also just when we watch something like the Olympics, just how often we offer up praise. To human beings when we see some great feat that that person did and we've we've seen praise constantly over the last few weeks but with this barrage of praise that we see in 113 and all of it directed to God what this psalm is essentially saying is that whatever praise we might give another human being God deserves infinitely more praise. In fact, you could argue that the psalm is making the case that God deserves all praise. And if you think about it, if that's true, how little we do what the Bible actually commands. Because if you've watched the news, and, and as you've watched uh, sporting events, and as you've watched uh, ESPN or or things and caught kind of like the updates of what's going on with the Olympics or if you're watching the, the competition as it is unfolding, as I said, you've heard many, many examples of praise. But how many times in the last couple of weeks have you heard any of those people once offer up praise to God? I would venture to say you probably haven't. Not one time. And yet, every single athlete that we watch is able to do what they're doing solely by the common grace of God. No one would be able to do any of those feats except that God gave them the God-given ability to do it. Ironically, when we look at one of these amazing athletes and, and we say, what an amazing feat, they just did. Even though we might not know it, we are invariably praising God. Because looking at what they're doing and acknowledging what they're doing screams amazing creator. As Jesus said, even the stones will cry out if we don't. And so we understand the concept of praising a person. But notice that this psalm really doesn't focus that much with praising the person of God. Notice that. If you look closely at at Psalm 113, especially here at the beginning, we notice that the praise focuses more on the concept of praising God's name. Praising God's name. See there, verse 1, praise the Lord, praise those servants of the Lord, praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. From the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. Scripture shows all throughout not only incredibly high regard to the person of God, but also to the name of God. We see it all throughout the Bible, Job 1, 20 and 21. Then Job arose after all of the devastation that happened to Job. This has always just shocked me and and made me feel ashamed of my own lack of praising God when you read this. Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, fell on the ground, and worshipped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. And then what does he say? Blessed be the name of the Lord. Exodus 20 God gives us ten commandments. If You ask people to name the ten commandments, generally speaking, they can only give you two or three. And never in order. The one that we probably always omit is the command not to take the name of the Lord in vain. God gave that as one of his ten commandments. Do not take the name of the Lord of the Lord your God in, in vain. Deuteronomy 28, 58 and 59. If you are not careful to do all the words of this law that are written in this book, that you may fear this glorious and awesome name, the Lord your God, then the Lord will bring on you and your offspring extraordinary afflictions. Psalm 34, 3. Oh, magnify the Lord with me, his person, and let us exalt his name together. Isaiah 42.8, I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other. Ezekiel 36, God says, therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it's not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name. The name of God is uplifted over and over and over again in Scripture. And I want to camp here for a minute and look at this concept of name. In all of these Scriptures in our English Bibles, the English word Lord, in all the Scriptures I just read and, and all throughout the Bible, God's name is referenced. God's name. Now, all throughout the bible there are different titles and words used for god as you read through your english bible you will oftentimes see the word god there in english and you know it's referring to the same god but that that word in hebrew is elohim sometimes as you're reading through your bible you'll see the word lord with a capital l and then three lowercase letters o-r-d When you come across that, you can know that what is the Hebrew word is being used there is the Hebrew title, Adonai. When you come across, as was in every one of those scriptures that I just read, and as is found more than 6,800 times throughout the Old Testament, all capital letters capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D you can be assured that what you are seeing there is God's divine name. His name is being used. God's name in the Hebrew Bible is represented by four Hebrew consonants together. And and those of you who know Hebrew, you know as you're reading through it, stands out uh, boldly in bold relief. Uh, yod Hey, vav Hey. When you see that, you know it is God's divine name. It's called the Tetragrammaton, we call it. And his name means, I am who I am. You remember that when God said to Moses, I am is sending you. I am who I am. Tell them that's who I am. Now, we might not think of names as all that important. I mean, obviously, they're of some importance because we name uh, our children and we call each other by name. But when we give our children names, oftentimes it's something that we just think it sounds good or maybe it's something that's from the family or whatever. But in the Bible, names meant a lot. And the name that was given to someone revealed something about that person. You think, for instance, the name Jacob Jacob means usurper and the reason he was given that name is because when he came out he was grasping his brother Esau's heel and he usurped his brother Esau you remember not only by stealing his birthright but then also by stealing his blessing and then later Jacob is given another name after he wrestles with God God gives him the name Israel which doesn't mean usurper anymore, it means he has struggled with God. The name Joshua, or Jesus, means the Lord saves. And so these names reveal something about that person. So God's name stands for the identity of the God who bears it. And just think about, if you will, how gracious it was for God to give israel a name for him i don't think we often think about the graciousness of that one act because as israel was enslaved in egypt they heard the names of many other gods egypt had many gods and and all day long israel would hear the name of the god ra or osiris or isis or set they would hear these gods names And so when Moses says, can you give me a name, how gracious it was that God gave him a name. One scholar, Richard Bauckham, says this, giving himself a name means that the people of Israel can call him by name. Not that they can control him, but that they can address him. Think if you didn't know someone's name, how do you address that person? If you're like me, the kind of person who in seminary would meet someone for the first time and and tell them your name and then they would tell you their name and then immediately you'd forget what their name was, you know how awkward it is the next time you see that person because you somehow try to manipulate it so that they can say their name again. And generally speaking, the second time, if you somehow manage to get their name a second time you're thinking to yourself, I can't believe I forgot that person's name. And so then when they say their name the second time, you don't remember it again. And so by the third time you see that person, you're either trying to avoid them the rest of the time so that you never talk to them again, or right away you say, hey, how's it going, right? Or some, some kind of way that, to avoid saying their name. And God gave them a name. And so when Jesus, talking to his disciples and teaching them how to pray... What does he say when we call it the Lord's Prayer? I really think it should be called the Disciples' Prayer because it's the disciples who said, Lord, please teach us how to pray. If you want to see the Lord's Prayer, go read the High Priestly Prayer in John chapter 17. But when God teaches his disciples how to pray, what's the first thing included in that prayer? Hallowed be your name. And any Jewish hearer, any Jewish disciple that would have heard that, would have understood Jesus to have been talking about God's divine personal name. Every Jewish disciple that would have heard that would have understood Jesus to be essentially requesting that God would bring it about, that people all over the world would acknowledge and reverence god's name everywhere and at all times now think about that christian think about when you pray think about how often you pray that jesus when he taught his disciples how to pray said that's the first thing i want you to pray god i want and i desire that you make it so that your name is acknowledged and reverenced all over the world How often have you prayed that? I have to admit, I don't know that I ever have, except when I recite that prayer. Generally, we skip right to give us this day our daily bread, if we even pray that. Now, by Jesus' time, Jews would not pronounce the divine name. They would not pronounce it on purpose. They would reference it in some way, but they wouldn't pronounce it because they didn't want to accidentally take his name in vain or use it in some way that they shouldn't. The only time God's name would be pronounced by anyone in Jesus' time was when the high priest would go into the temple on the Day of Atonement, on one day, and in secret, in the Holy of Holies, he would pronounce God's divine name so that no one else would hear it. And that's it. No other Jew would do it. What was Jesus' own substitute for God's divine name? Every time Jesus addressed God, he addressed him as my father. My father. Every other Jew would address God as my God. That was the way they got around addressing God by name. Jesus did not use the Aramaic phrase, my God. Instead, he used the phrase that we even find in our Bible still kept, the Aramaic phrase, Abba, Father. Abba was a term of endearment. And Jesus used that exclusively to show that he had a relationship with God that no one else had. He had a close relationship unlike anyone else. And interestingly, the Apostle Paul says that when we, who by nature do not have that relationship with God, when we come to faith in Christ and are united to Christ and now are the adopted sons and daughters of God, we too can go to God calling him Abba Father. The same name that Jesus used. What an amazing privilege it is. So how do we pronounce the name today? Well, we don't know. Because even when vowel pointings were added in the Middle Ages by these Masorite scribes to the Hebrew text, Hebrew didn't have any vowels. It, it, It had only consonants, but the Hebrews knew how to read it with only the consonants. Later on, scribes added what are called vowel points to help non-Jews read those words. And without the vowel points, there's very little that I could read in Hebrew. So I'm very grateful that they added those points. But interestingly, when they got to God's divine name, they switched the vowel pointings so that we wouldn't be able to pronounce it. They put the vowel pointings for the title Adonai on top of the Tetragrammaton, God's name. And we have mistakenly uh, read that as Yehovah or Jehovah. But that's not, that's, that's a mistake. Now, if you call God Jehovah, I'm not, don't worry about it. Uh, we've, it's kind of grown into our nomenclature. The best that we can come up with is the name Yahweh. We don't know if that's how it was pronounced, but that's our best attempt. And so in seminary, I got used to, we all got used to, as we were reading through the Hebrew, coming to that name, and rather than saying the Lord, we would say Yahweh. Yahweh said, Yahweh did, Yahweh acted. It was a really quite an amazing experience, because I had never read the Bible that way, recognizing that this was the divine name of God his personal name, and so, for example, if we go back to Psalm 113, we see that it has God's name written eight times, and as you go through it, substituting the name Yahweh, you see that it it makes a difference. Praise Yahweh. Praise, O servants of Yahweh. Praise the name of Yahweh. Blessed be the name of Yahweh. The name of Yahweh is to be praised. Yahweh is high above the heavens who is like Yahweh our God praise Yahweh now as we come to the center of the psalm verse 5 it asks who then is like Yahweh our God and of course the it's a rhetorical question that, that really only has at bottom one answer And the rest of the psalm goes on to show that the answer truly is no one. No one is like Yahweh, our God. Which is why Psalm 113 tells us how different His name is going to be remembered compared to anyone else. Verse 2 says that God's name is going to be remembered eternally. From this time forth, and forevermore. It tells us in verse 3 that God's name is going to be remembered universally. Notice it says, from the rising of the sun to its setting. What that means, it's a poetic phrase, meaning from the east to the west, or from all over the world. Every tribe and tongue and nation from now into eternity is going to remember the name of the Lord. And you compare that then to even the greatest human beings. have ever lived. Even some that we thought were great for a moment, and, and even some that were plastered everywhere for a moment, are now forgotten. I'm not asking to raise your hand, but just in your minds, think, if you will, and those of you in this room who remember the name Mary Lou Retton. Now, if you're around my age or older you remember the name you don't have to be probably much younger than i am to not know who that is and yet at one time she was plastered everywhere was she not one time she was like the face of america and in less than two generations nobody knows who she is or cares who she is all we care about now is simone biles and 40 years from now simone biles will be forgotten Not the Lord. God will be remembered forever and all over the world. And verses four and six show us why. They begin to show us why. Verses four and six surround verse five. Yahweh is high above all the nations, his glory above the heavens. Yahweh is seated on high and he looks down on the heavens and the earth. Notice here just how much. God's distance, his majesty, his transcendence is highlighted here in the language. He is high above all the nations. It doesn't matter if, as a Jew, you are enslaved in Egypt. Egypt at that moment seems like the world's juggernaut. Egypt seems like an unstoppable force. Egypt seems like something you could never defeat on your own. And every world power has seemed that way. From Greece to Rome and even at one point and maybe still the United States. Maybe one day it will be China. We don't know. All we know is that compared to whatever world power is in power, Yahweh our God absolutely dwarfs it. Isaiah chapter 40 who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span and closed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as dust on the scales. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. It is he who sits above the circle of the earth. Its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing, who makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Notice here, Yahweh's glory is above the heavens. Yahweh is seated on high, and he's seated so high that he looks far down on the heavens and the earth. We just celebrated, some of us, Some of us just took notice, some of us probably don't care that Jeff Bezos uh, took a trip into space and we think that's a great accomplishment and yet the psalmist tells us that the space that we look up to and and so think is, is such a marvel and something that we would all love to go visit one day maybe, the psalmist tells us that God is seated so high that he needs to stoop down to look down upon the sky that we look up to. One scholar puts it this way, the very heavens are almost out of sight below him. And when we just look at these verses alone and the the sheer majesty of God, the sheer transcendence of God, that alone should be enough for us to praise him for all eternity. The psalm could have stopped there and we would have reason alone to praise him. But notice that the psalmist doesn't stop with his majesty, the psalmist speaks as well of God's grace. Verse 6, as I said, is is kind of a transition verse because verse 6, yes, it speaks about the majesty of God and, and how high he sits, and it speaks about how he must stoop down low to look at the heavens and the earth, pointing to how much higher he is than we are, and yet it's kind of moving in a way to show us just how and why he stoops down. That's what the second half of this psalm is about that the God who is so far above his creation nevertheless stoops down to care for it. Verses seven and nine He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes with the princes of his people he gives the barren woman a home making her the joyous mother of children praise the lord now the way the hebrew is written here it emphasizes that all of god's actions that we see here in verses seven and nine are completely of his own doing he's not being coerced to do these things he's not being pressured to do these things God is doing these things that we read about in 7 and 9 sheer out of his own sheer grace now as I thought about this and and read these verses and we'll get into them in a minute I I just began to ponder again my mind went to Jeff Bezos thinking about him flying to space and yeah I think I think now he is the richest man in the world And I thought about this. Jeff Bezos, founder and owner, CEO, I guess, of Amazon. How much do you think Jeff Bezos knows or even cares about the middle manager running one of his warehouses in Kansas? More to the point, how much does he know or care about the kid that is packing Amazon boxes in that warehouse in Kansas? And more to the point, how much does Jeff Bezos know or care about the janitorial staff that comes in and sweeps up and mops and cleans the warehouse in Kansas where the boxes are packed? And really, to ask the question, answers itself. I mean, there's no way that this man would eat know about or care about Uh, any of those people. And yet, looking at the psalm, we see how different our God is. And what amazes the psalmist so much is not only that our God sits so high, but that the God who sits so high above all earthly kings and rulers and nations, nevertheless, takes notice of those that we humans forget. Those that we humans despise. In fact, that's why he stoops down. Look at that. He doesn't stoop down to hobnob with the rulers of this world. He doesn't stoop down to get involved in, in, in the affairs of state and, and all of these things. He, he stoops down To raise the poor from the dust. To lift the needy from the ash heap. To make them sit with princes. These people that are described here are the poorest of the poor. He raises the poor from the dust. The person that lives on a dirt floor. He reaches down to those who are in the ash heap. That word, that phrase, ash heap, I looked it up this week. Ash heap means pile of trash. A dumping place for worthless garbage. Ash heap means a pile of dung. Those that our God seeks out are those that we consider garbage and relegate there. As I read this psalm and thought about that, I thought about Robin and Carlos Oliveros who in the name of God are living not visiting, not a a one week missions trip but are living in Tijuana, Mexico ministering every day to people who their society have cast out into the garbage heaps of Tijuana. Being the hands and the face of this God that we see in Psalm 113. Derek Kidner, one Old Testament scholar, he uh, titled this psalm far more creatively than I did. He titled it, Nothing Too Great for Him, No One Too Small. And you can see this in the psalm, in in the poetry of the psalm, you can see this movement, can't you? You see the movement from God over here, up here, way up here, higher than you can ever imagine, coming down so low that he can lift up the lowest of the low and then raising them up to be where he is. That's the movement that we see in this psalm. But while verses 7 and 8 speak of needy groups, I mean, after all, we have seen throughout history some leaders care for large groups of poor. Sometimes it's selflessly. Oftentimes it's selfishly. Oftentimes leaders will care for the poor to get people on their side, to have the masses adore them and love them and basically so they can live in mansions themselves while the poor go on being poor. But notice how verse 9 gets very specific even those leaders that care kind of for the masses, how often do those great leaders seek out one lonely, poor person and minister to them? And notice verse 9. Yahweh, who sits above the entire universe, stoops down to notice a single poor Barren woman. Now, if we know anything about the ancient Near East and and Bible times, a, a barren woman was indeed someone you wouldn't want to be. Because a barren woman, if if her husband died, was basically as good as dead. And barren women were not only almost again as good as dead, but they were they were often considered objects of reproach because people would see their barrenness and then interpret that as you must have done something wrong. God is punishing you. That's why you have no children. And so a barren woman was one of the greatest outcasts there were. And yet, notice the Old Testament. It's full of stories of God reaching down and touching the womb of barren woman after barren woman after barren woman, Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, Samson's mother, the Shunammite woman, Elizabeth, and verse 7 of our psalm, in fact, comes from the song and the prayer of Hannah, what we read earlier in our worship service. Hannah prayed, and she said, there is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. And then she says this, he raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. See, the point, the point is this, Christian. The poor and the needy, the brokenhearted, the downtrodden, those whom the world rejects are the very ones who are the objects of God's divine grace. Christian, that includes you, whether you know it or not. Paul says, he doesn't mince words, not many of us were anything when the Lord found us. But Christian, Yahweh, the king of the universe, the one enthroned above the heavens, knows you. He reached down into this world. He stooped down and he rescued you. And he knows every hair on your head. He knows everything you're going through. He knows every tear that you shed and he keeps them all in his bottle, Psalm 56. Who is like Yahweh our God? Well, the answer is only one. Hannah's song was essentially sung yet again by another woman who was told that she would bear a son. And when Mary was told that she would bear a son, she exclaimed, My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant, For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. Do you want to know what Yahweh our God is like? Look no further than the Lord Jesus Christ. Scripture tells us that our Lord was seated in the highest of heavens. Before the world was created, he had perfect communion with his Father. And scripture tells us that he nevertheless did not consider equality with God as something to hold on to, but he gave up his throne and he came down. He came so far down that he became that which he created. He wasn't born in Rome. He wasn't born in Jerusalem. He was born in a lowly stable and raised in a podunk town called Nazareth that even local Jews scoffed at. He didn't hobnob with rulers or kings. He didn't try to get in good with religious leaders or, or make a bunch of money. Instead, he had nowhere to lay his head. And to whom did he take notice? When our Lord walked the earth, he walked up to a leper, the most outcast among them. He noticed him and he reached out and he touched him, something that probably hadn't happened since the man contracted leprosy. He noticed the sinful woman who cried and washed him with her tears, the one that Simon the Pharisee scorned, and he loved her, and he forgave her. He noticed the invalid that everyone else walked past, who hadn't walked in 38 years, who was laying by the pool of Bethesda, and he reached out, and he healed him. He noticed the poor widow that everyone else scoffed at, who dropped in two little coins And he pointed her out and said she gave more than anyone else. See, all throughout his life, Jesus reached down and lifted up the poor and the needy and the outcast. And if that wasn't enough, he took the form of a slave and a sinner and went all the way to a rugged Roman cross. Where he died the most shameful of deaths. Isn't it interesting that on the night that he was betrayed, on the night that he was arrested and falsely accused and that the wheels of the crucifixion were set in motion, he had sung this psalm as they ate the Passover meal. And when he hung on the cross, for the first time ever, he did not refer to his God Yahweh as my Father. But like everyone else, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He used a name he had never used before. Christian, if this psalm teaches us one thing, it teaches us that there is one name that is above every name. And it is the name Yahweh. And I wonder if the Apostle Paul had Psalm 113 in mind when he wrote, Therefore, God has highly exalted him and has bestowed on him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What is the name that is above every name? The name of God, and that is the name that our Lord Jesus Christ bears. And that is why every knee will bow to Jesus, because he alone deserves it. It is Jesus who fulfills Psalm 113. It is Jesus in whom Yahweh's name will be remembered for all eternity. And it is Jesus in whom Yahweh's name will be proclaimed by all tribes and tongues and nations forevermore. And what does Jesus do for us, Christian? You and I, the lowly ones who didn't deserve it. He raises us up, and Paul says, He seats us with Him in the heavenly places. Christian, to save us, Jesus reached all the way down, from the highest height to the lowest low. And He perfectly fulfills Psalm 113, both the majesty of God and the grace of God are both met in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we are so grateful this morning that you have reminded us of what you did for us all those years ago when your son was born on this earth and went to the cross to fulfill this psalm. And Father, we gather here this morning as redeemed sinners who are even now, in some sense, seated with you in the heavenlies, though we don't deserve it. And Father, one day when our Lord returns again and stoops down again, he will gather us up, and then we will be seated, not only with you, but at the marriage supper of the Lamb. May we never forget it. In Jesus' name, amen.